we were at a resort celebrating our anniversary, which is a very embarrassing thing for a missionary to have to say, right? We weren't busy doing our work. We were at a resort. Wish I could change that. Martin was a jungle pilot for New Tribes Mission Aviation. We'd been in the Philippines for 16 years by then. Um, NTMA asked Martin if he would become our chief pilot worldwide. Well, he didn't want that job because that meant we would have to move back to the United States. We wanted to stay in the Philippines. So he came back to our headquarters in Arizona for bargaining meetings. And on his way back to the Philippines, he got a call from our pilot on the island of Palawan telling us that that pilot's father had just died. He was going to have to go home for a funeral to Iowa. Would Martin do his flying for him? Martin was happy to do that. Uh, he called me and said, Gracia, I can't come home. I've got to go fly for Jerry. So I cleared my schedule because I knew he would need help. And I went down to Palawan to help him. I left our children with our neighbors, our co-workers, and told them, we'll be home in one week. As we were down there um, on Palawan, our anniversary rolled around. And um, Martin had jet lag anyway from his trip across the Pacific. So we called our co-workers and said, you know, where's a place where we could go rest? Martin just needs some naps before he starts to fly. And they said, oh, Dos Palmas, you'll get lots of rest there. Then they told us the cost, and it was too much money. And it was on the tip of my tongue to say, you know, we'll just stay in a little place in town. But our anniversary, that was how I justified the cost. And we went out to Dos Palmas. We had a beautiful meal that first night, went out in the kayaks and looked at the starfish, uh, went to bed that night and... Before dawn the next morning, there was pounding on the door, bang, bang, bang. And even before Martin could get to the door, these three guys with M16s broke the door in, and one of them took him right out. One of them came over to the bed, and he lowered his weapon at me and yelled, go, go, go. And I said, no, 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 I'm not dressed properly. I grabbed the closest thing to me, it's what I'd worn to the beach the night before, cut off shorts and a t-shirt, And they took me out, too, and they were emptying all of those cottages built on stilts out over the ocean, taking us to a waiting speedboat. And as we pulled away from the dock, they raised their weapons, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar. And that's when we knew who had us, militant Muslims who've declared jihad in that area of the world. But their jihad has really degenerated into a kidnap for ransom group. And we knew we were in big trouble. The other thing I knew was if these guys were Muslims who had just taken us hostage, I wasn't dressed properly. You know how Muslims keep their women totally covered. And here I was with shorts and a t-shirt. So one of my first prayers was that I would have something decent to wear. Um, that... First night, they transferred us from a speedboat to a fishing vessel that they commandeered. And as we got on the fishing vessel, one of the guys threw this malong at me. A malong is a long piece of batik material that's been sewn up the middle to make a tube. And this became my skirt. If you were to go to the marketplace in the Philippines, you would see lots of women wearing these. Not just Muslim women. 
You might even see a man or two. I never got used to seeing 18-year-old guys with M16s walking through the jungle with a skirt on. That didn't make much sense to me. This was my most prized possession in the jungle. This was our blanket that first night on the boat. This was my changing room when they would allow us to go to the river for a bath. And when I talk about a bath, we would step into the stream or the river with all our clothes on and we would get ourselves wet and we would, um, if we had soap, we would soap up under our clothes, we would rinse off and we would drip dry. That was a bath. If we had clean clothes to change into, and sometimes we did, our possessions would come and go. We would have things, but we would lose them all in gun battles when we would be dropping and running. If I had something clean to put on after a bath, they weren't going to let me go find a private place to change in the jungle because they thought I might not come back. And they were right. So I would just get into this and get this in my teeth so my hands were free. I would take off my wet stuff and put it in a pile and get my dry stuff and put it on. And sometimes it was awkward and you got stuck. It probably looked like a Mr. Bean sketch, but it worked. This was our towel at the river. This was my bathroom. I had the same problem every time I needed to use the bathroom because they weren't going to let me go find a private place. So I would just step off the trail in front of God and everybody and get in this thing and get on and just squat there and do what I needed to do. Well, I'd never done that before. And the first few times you try that, you don't hit where you're aiming. This would be a messy malone till we got to the next river. This was our suitcase. When we were first taken, we didn't have a backpack or anything. And the guys would come running into camp. Sundalo, Sundalo, soldiers, soldiers, pack up. And we would grab everything we owned and we would throw it into the middle of the malone and tie up the inside ends. So things didn't fall out and just throw it over our shoulder and run. This was our stretcher. Martin died in our 17th gun battle. And in those gun battles, there would be dead. There would be wounded that they needed to deal with till we could get to a Muslim village where they could handle the problem. So the first thing we would do after a gun, they would do after a gun battle is chop down a tree. I didn't think I ought to chop down a tree in Washington. I think that's maybe illegal or something. Um, Anyway, I borrowed this. They would chop the tree down and thread the malung onto the tree. The wounded guy would lay down in the middle. They would get one guy on this end, one guy on that end, and they would just carry him for days, for weeks, through the jungle, however long... Uh, it took. This was my Kleenex when I sat around crying, which was every day because I always felt sorry for myself. Uh, I always wished this weren't happening to me. I always missed my kids. And, uh, you know, when you cry, your nose runs. This was a great big hanky. They saw that it was difficult to run through the jungle with a skirt on. So they started ordering what they called pantos. These are kind of like pajama bottoms. These would come into the camp. The guys would snatch up the dark green, the dark brown, the things that would camouflage well. The guys got those. They got the gave the light color clothes to us hostages. 
So we would make a good target for the military. We were happy to have these. Um, these are thin. They never kept the mosquitoes from biting right through them. Um, I needed a long sleeve shirt. Remember, I was taken hostage in just a T-shirt, and um, I knew that wasn't acceptable to them, and I asked God for a new shirt. Uh, I My prayer wasn't very specific because after one of our fun, first gun battles, my guard, his name was Sakaki, he came running in and he said, um, ma'am, ma'am, over in that farmer's hut, I found this shirt for you. And he held up the ugliest shirt I'd ever seen, uh, psychedelic designs, flowers, colors all over it. I thought, oh, yeah, I will be the target. I said, Sakaki, I think someone else needs that shirt. He said, I know this is for you. And I wore it for a long time till one day Lokman gave me his shirt when he got a new one. I was so happy to have this. Uh, this was heavy. It was hot for the tropics. But I was so glad to have it because the sleeves were long enough. They even covered my fingertips. And I was trying to keep every inch of me covered. I think the most important thing to them that I wore was my head covering. Um, this is not the one I wore in the jungle. This is one that I went back for a visit, and this was pretty. Saw it in the market, so I got it. Um, I kept my turong, they called it a turong, on all the time. Even when I slept, I was just trying to do the right thing. The guys were always after me to stick my hair up under my turong. You know, if you haven't had a bath in four weeks, your hair is going to be stringy and awful and hanging in your face. And the guys were always after me to stick my hair up under my turong. And I thought they didn't like my blonde hair. I found out later they believe for every hair that sticks out from under your turong, that's how many thousands of years you will spend in hell. Well, I don't plan on going to hell. Jesus took care of that for me some 2,000 years ago. It doesn't have anything to do with my head covering. Um, I thought today that you might not know what Muslims believe. Sometimes we wonder, why are they so mad at us? Why are they so angry all the time? And I thought maybe since this is Sunday school, we could have Muslim school. Would you want to do that? For maybe the next 10 minutes, let's just talk about what Muslims believe, uh, because God keeps bringing the Muslim world to our attention every time we turn on the TV. So let's look at some things that we have common, uh, Muslims and Christians, and let's look at some of the differences, okay? Um, first of all, Islam is the religion of the Muslim. Muslims are the people, Islam is the religion. I didn't want you to confuse those terms, and um, before we go on, I'm just going to make a disclaimer. I don't want you to think that I think I'm an expert on Islam because I'm not. All I know is what I learned living with them for a year, okay? Um, when we were first taken hostage, they transferred us from that speedboat to the fishing vessel, and it was dusk. The sun was just starting to set, so it was time for evening prayer. Muslims are require, required to pray five times a day facing Mecca, and that was one of the first problems. We were out on the ocean, and they weren't sure which direction Mecca was, so there was a lot of talk and shoulder shrugging 
and they got that figured out, and they started their ritualistic bowing down. And I asked Martin, are they praying to the same God we're praying to? And Martin said, I have no idea. So we started to listen to them about their ideas of God. And this is what they told us. They believe that Allah made everything. He's sovereign. He's almighty. He's all-knowing. He is the judge. He's the greatest. There's none greater. He hears and answers prayer. He's merciful. He's the provider. Well, that sounded a whole lot like Jehovah to us. But then there were some things that didn't sound like Jehovah God. You can bribe Allah. He plays favorites. He changes his mind a lot. You can follow all his rules and he can still not allow you into paradise on judgment day if he's in a bad mood. Well, we know who the true God is, don't we? We know who he is because we know him personally. His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're God's children. It's this special thing that happens that you can't even explain when you become a child of God. So we know who he is and every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. They have 100 names for God. Um, mankind only knows 99 of them, though. One of them is a secret. They wear a rosary around their necks, and it has 99 beads on it, and then a special set of beads for the unknown, the, the secret name of God. Um, have you ever noticed that a camel is smiling? A camel has a smile on his face. Have you ever wondered why the camel's smiling? He knows the 100th name for God, um, but he's not telling. Uh, and I thought, oh, I know what the 100th name for God is. I asked one of the guys one day, is one of your names for Allah love? And he said, no, Allah doesn't love us. And we don't love him either. We just do what we're supposed to. Um, we know the 100th name of God. He's love. We have a lot of the same important people in our beliefs. Prophets, they call them. They know all about Adam, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David. David, that's a freaky one. Uh, they think David was a great mujahid, a great holy warrior. What did David do when he killed Goliath? He chopped his head off. That's what those guys would do when we would get to a village and they wanted to gain control or prove a point. They would separate a few guys off to the side, chop their heads off. David was a great, a holy warrior. Jesus, they know all about Jesus. They believe that at the end of time, Jesus will come to earth again riding a white horse. Have you ever heard that? That's in our scripture. There will be a battle called Armageddon. And Jesus will judge the world. Have you heard that? That's in our scripture. But do you know who Jesus is coming to judge? They believe he's going to judge those of us who thought he was God. Because, of course, Jesus wasn't God, they say. He was just a mighty prophet. And after Jesus came, the final, the mightiest prophet, his name was Muhammad. Here's another big difference. Um... Islam, they told us, is all about justice. We want justice for every bad thing that has ever happened to Muslims. And they go really far back in history because they say Allah is a God of justice and we need to help him get justice. 
Martin would tell them, I guess the gospel, what we believe, is all about mercy. We need someone to have mercy on us, because if we get justice, we're all in big trouble. Martin quoted some verses one day to Solomon, one of the leaders of our group. Um, because of his mercies, we're not consumed. Because of his great mercy, he saved us. And Solomon said with a sneer, well, where's the justice in a religion like that? I said, Solomon, we have all agreed that we're all sinners and God's going to judge us one day. And we believe that God provided someone to pay for our sin so we don't have to. And Solomon said, I'll pay for my own sin. Several years ago on my birthday, the phone rang early in the morning. I thought it must be one of my sisters in a different time zone calling to wish me happy birthday. But it was the Associated Press. They wanted a statement from me. It seems that that very morning, a leader of the Abu Sayyaf had been killed in the Philippines in a gun battle with the military. His name, they said, Suleiman. Well, first of all, what are the chances of that happening on my birthday? It's like God tapped me on the shoulder and said, Gracia, I have not forgotten you. And then the next thing I thought of was Suleiman's words, I'll pay for my own sin. And that's what's happening to Suleiman today. He's paying for his own sin. And that was my statement that day to the Associated Press. That I was so sad that Suleiman began paying for his sin that day. And the importance of having a sin bearer. Aren't you glad you have a sin bearer? Here's something that is the same when we compare Islam and Christianity. Muslims believe that... Uh, everyone has sinned and that God will judge everyone. And I'll talk about the judgment in just a minute. If God says so, you'll go to heaven. If God says so, you'll go to hell. And everybody agreed that no one wants to go to hell. And that's why there are so many terrorists. The only way for a Muslim to be absolutely sure that they're going to heaven when they die is if they die in jihad, in holy war. Holy warriors bypass the iffy judgment and go straight to paradise and that's what makes them to willing to strap explosives on their backs and blow themselves up um, because that's how they can be sure of heaven here's another difference um, muslims believe they can work their way to heaven uh, that's why they pray five times a day they have fasting days they give alms to the poor they wear the right clothes the head coverings, they eat the right foods, they avoid other foods. They follow all the rules in hopes that, well, here's their belief about the judgment. They believe that at the end of all time, everyone who's ever been born will stand in a long line beside each other waiting to be judged. And they'll stand in the posture that they begin their praying in, and they'll stand totally naked for 40,000 years, they'll stand that way. When they can't bear it anymore, they'll start going to the prophets. They'll go to Adam. They'll say, Adam, go to Allah. Ask him to judge us. We don't want to do this anymore. Adam will say, I can't go to Allah. I'm not worthy. So they'll find Abraham. Abraham, go to Allah. Ask him to judge us. We can't bear this anymore. And Abraham will say, I can't go to Allah. I'm not worthy. They'll go prophet to prophet. 
Jesus will say, I'm not worthy. Then they'll find Muhammad. Muhammad will go to Allah and convince him that it's time to judge mankind. And Allah will take your good things. You're praying five times a day. You're wearing the right clothes, eating the right foods. He'll weigh that against your sin. If your good outweighs your bad, you go to paradise. If your bad outweighs your good, you go to hell. You know what scripture says, right? If there's one thing on your bad side, you can't enter heaven because God's holy. He cannot. He will not look on sin. And that was the point. When Jesus died, he took our sin on himself. But he didn't just take our sin. He traded us something for it. He gave back to us his righteousness. And now when God looks at us, there's nothing charged against us because of what Jesus did on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it so well. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We're totally forgiven because of what Jesus did. And that's something a Muslim can never know, how it feels to know that your sins are forgiven. Well, that's the end of Muslim school, except to say one thing. Uh, please don't be afraid of Muslims, because when you're afraid of something... You keep it at arm's length, don't you? Um, you stay as far away from it as possible. The normal Muslim and you have a whole lot in common. Mostly they want what you want. They want a good home, a peaceful place to live, a place where their children can thrive. And who knows but what God might be working in their hearts to make them wish that there was something to fill the void that they feel in their soul. And, and if we don't reach out to Muslims and befriend them, how are they ever going to hear the gospel? Because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The power of God is the, is the gospels, the power of God to salvation for everyone. And it's not likely we can share the gospel unless we build a relationship. God's bringing the nations to our doorstep. So let's show them hospitality and bless them and talk to them about spiritual things. A lady in Independence, Missouri, one day was having her book signed after I spoke at that church. And she said, Gracia, God's given me a burden for Muslims. And I don't even know what to do with it because I don't even know any Muslims. And I'm not going to go find any. I'm a busy person. And I said, well, let's just pray and ask God why he gave you a burden for Muslims. She sent me an email several days later. Um. One morning she was running to the grocery store for milk because she forgot to buy it the night before. And there, laying in the road at the stop sign, was a wallet. So she put the car in park and got out and got the wallet and looked at the ID and saw that the man it belonged to looked like he might be a Muslim. So she took the wallet to their address and sure enough, they were a Muslim family. They were beside themselves at the missing wallet. And so grateful to her. So the next day she prayed and she took him a fruit basket. And the next day she uh, prayed and went and asked him if they would come to their house for Thanksgiving dinner. uh, So they could start building a relationship with them. Let God use you. Maybe it could be you that gets to see a Muslim learn that they can be forgiven. Well, I have some stories to tell you today. But first I want to do a quick commercial break. Um... 
I wonder if you would stop by the NTM table on your way out today. I was invited here this weekend for the air show with Matta and uh, the, those Matta folks. I think you know them. If you haven't been out to the Matta hangar at the airport, please go and get a tour, uh, and you'll really enjoy Gary and Stacy, our co-workers from the Philippines that we flew with. Um, Gary and Stacy and I were members of New Tribes Mission, and at the back table... There's uh, Jeff and Juanita Worley, dear friends and co-workers there. And I want to tell you about the R-66 helicopter just real quick because it's very special to me. I think we have some pictures. Um, the tail numbers on the R-66 are N-621MB. The MB stands for Martin Burnham. And here is a little plaque that Jeff Worley is giving me. It's not a plaque. It's a picture of that beautiful R66 that has um, MB on the tail wheel, and what an honor that is. Uh, they did that for me at the fun, Sun and Fun Air Show in Florida. The next one is the first flight of the R66 that took Danny and Philippa Brooks and kids Izzy and Judah to the new tribe they were going to move to to share the, the Christ in there. Um, here they are trying to figure out how to get everything in the helicopter. Those honey nut Cheerios are pretty important, don't you think? <laughs> pretty important cargo. And um, the next one is Izzy, their little girl. Her life was spared when she was just tiny six years ago because of the missionary aviation program in the Philippines. Uh, missionary aviation helps facilitate bringing Christ to tribal groups, and it helps sustain missionaries and their families while they live in remote places. And you can help. Please stop by and pick up a copy of the NTMA journal. And if you don't get this at your house, sign up on one of the sign-up sheets to get that. Give us your email address, and we'll start sending you really neat stories of what's happening around the world with NTMA. We'll send you prayer requests because we're doing the best we can. We're working as hard as we can to bring the gospel to hard places. And the enemy is not going to let us waltz in to a tribal village and share the gospel. There's going to be lots of opposition there. So we need you guys to pray. So would you sign up to pray? When you sign up to pray, the first 12 people or so, we have... um, a DVD set. This has about a dozen really neat stories. These stories won't ever win Academy Awards, but they are awesome stories of what's God, what God's doing in tribal groups. So sign up and, and start praying for us. We're wanting to purchase some land to build a hangar for that R66, and we need people praying about that. And we're so grateful for people like Mata who train the pilots that come our way to help us. While we were held captive, I thought about the Jews when they were held captive and how the Babylonians, their captors, would require the Jews to sing the joyful hymns of Jerusalem to them. And at one point, Psalm 137 says, the Jews sat by the river and they wept and they put their instruments away because they couldn't sing any more songs, joyful songs of Jerusalem while in a foreign land. I did my share of sitting by the river Weeping. 
How well I remember the feeling of trying to get a song out without breaking down in tears. I was at the river one day with the other women hostages, and Harira had just learned that he was going to go out on a striking force the next day. A striking force is 10, 15 guys who they would send to another area of the island we were on to wreak some havoc in order to keep the attention away from our group. And we never knew if we would see them alive again. Things didn't always go well for them, as you can imagine. Harira came over to me and he asked me to sing him a song. This might be the last song I ever hear, he said. And at that moment, several things came to my mind that I could say to him, like, I hope it is the last song you ever hear. Or what about the fact that singing is forbidden by a Muslim? Or do I remember the words to, may the bird of paradise fly up your nose? Do you remember that stupid song? Um, but none of the replies I thought of was nice. And he had the gun. So I started in on the first song that came to my mind, Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountain, Shenandoah River. And I got to the chorus and realized what I was singing. Country roads take me home, home where I wanted to be. And I almost lost it right there. And you know what? I think Harira did too. Maybe it was just my imagination, but I think there was this moment there. When I finished that song, we both understood that we were caught in a struggle that was way beyond ourselves, and we had ended up on opposite ends of the battle, and it wasn't nice for either of us, and we both were scared and wished we were home. The Jews had seen the Babylonians destroy their city, level it to the ground, they'd yelled. They had seen the bodies of their babies smashed against the rocks. They were captives, and they couldn't force another song of joy from their lips. Have you been there? At the bottom, wondering how you ever got there. It happened so fast. Or maybe not for you. Maybe your trial was a long time in the making. It's when we're at the end of our rope that we look up and we seek God because there's nowhere else to look. And that's what happened to me in the jungle. I began seeking God as my comfortable life fell apart. I suddenly knew this problem was so big, I couldn't fix it this time. I got a good look at myself. I wasn't the heroic missionary wife anymore who had it all together. I was tired and hungry and stinky. I had constant diarrhea, no place to take a bath, no clean clothes to change into. And I started feeling more like an animal than a human being. But worse than that, I saw my heart for what it was. I saw my hatred. I hated those guys for what they were doing to us, for the pain they were causing our family. I coveted the food they had when they ate and didn't share it with us. I was faithless. I began blaming God for the situation I found myself in. There was nothing pretty about it. And at one point, I just gave up. I asked God, God, can you change me? I'm sick of being upset and depressed and bitter. Can you help me? Sometimes I think we're in such a bad way. We're such a fix that... Not even God can help us. Well, we've all heard that God's faithful in every circumstance. He is faithful. And after I asked God to start changing me, he started like doing it right, right there in the midst of the mess. The first change I remember had to do with water. At the beginning of our captivity, after four or five days on land, um, After four or five days on the ocean, we got to land and we were so excited because land meant the cell phones would work. 
The sat phones would work. The Abu Sayyaf could tell the government ne- negotiators their grievances and the government would make concessions and we could all go home, right? Wrong. That first day on land, the military found us and we had our first gun battle and we had to start running for our lives through the jungle. And here was this 40-something-year-old lady who was not fit, who was expected to keep up with these guys who were used to living in the jungle and I couldn't do it. And I especially couldn't do it without water and there was no water. And as we ran down the trail, I started talking to God about that. God, I need some water. I really, really need some water. If you don't bring me some water, I'm going to have to sit down. And I realized what I was doing. I was nagging at God. And I made a conscious decision to change my prayer. And I began to pray, God, I think you know what I need. Would you help me to be patient till you bring it to me? And then God started answering all sorts of prayers for us. One day, Martin prayed, God, would you do something special for us today so we know that you know that we're still here and someone brought us a Coke. And the miracle wasn't the Coke came into the jungle. The miracle was the guys didn't take them all and gave us one. But even as so many prayers were answered, our prayers to go home, it's like they weren't reaching the tops of the trees. They were falling on deaf ears. And at almost the year mark of being held captive, I got sick of that prayer not being answered. And I thought, okay, if God's not going to answer our prayer for release, I'm going to start praying for a hamburger. Because I figured if I was eating a hamburger, I was out of the jungle. You know, you go around the back door with God. And Martin laughed at me too, but I was serious. And I fervently prayed for that hamburger. Right about Easter time, someone paid a ransom for us. And you can imagine our excitement when some of the money came into camp. This was it. It's what we'd all been waiting uh, for. We could all go home. And the leaders of the Abu Sayyaf sat down and had a big meeting. And they called me and Martin over. And we sat down on the ground. And they said, someone's paid a ransom for you. But we've decided it's not enough. And we're going to ask for more. And I begged them not to do that. I said, this is not going to turn out well. We are sick of this. You're sick of this. Just take the money and let's go home. But they were greedy and they hardened their hearts and they asked for more money. But for a while, the group had some money. And that very night, they snuck us off of the island of Basilan, which by that time was teeming with soldiers. And for less than 24 hours, they took us to a little Muslim fishing village near a city. And someone went into the city and brought back to us hamburgers, french fries, cokes. They heard Americans like that sort of thing. And it's like God hit me over the head. Can I not supply a hamburger for you in the jungle? I'm God. I can do anything. And when we got the hamburger, but not our freedom, we started thinking something must be going on here. God must have a plan in all this. And we both really thought that neither of us would go home alive. We thought we would die there in the jungle. And our prayers began to change. And of course, we kept asking God for our freedom, but our prayer became more. God, you must have something to teach us here. Would you please help us to learn it well? The biggest change in me had to do with my attitude towards my enemies. Jesus told us how to handle the problem of dealing with enemies, Like, right? He said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who are using you. God began teaching me love towards my enemies. There was Ahmad, one of the guys holding us. He was about 14 years old. 
There were young kids there as well as older guys. Uh, for the most part, the kids did the menial tasks, the things the other guys didn't want to do, like carrying the heavy loads or fetching the firewood. But Ahmed was different because his uncle was the number two man of the Abu Sayyaf, and he carried an M14. And that gave him status even though he was just a kid. He was very proud of himself. Um, you know how 14-year-old boys are, right? They're always hungry. And we would go for days sometimes with nothing to eat. And then food would come into the camp, and I would watch Ahmad steal our group's food. We sort of walked in groups, ate in groups, slept in groups. He would eat our group's food all by himself in hiding. I was filled with envy at that kid. I was the lowest hostage. I was an American, and I was a woman, and that was two strikes against me. And Ahmad decided I was someone he could boss around. And we'd be walking down the jungle trail, and he would follow me, saying one of the few English words he knew, Pastor, pastor, pastor. Faster, faster, faster. I couldn't go any faster. We were in a line. One day, they allowed me and Martin to go to the river for a bath, and they asked Ahmad to be our guard. Well, he didn't want to take the Americanos to the river. He wanted to be out on guard duty or hanging around in his hammock, and he had a bad attitude. While we were down there, he started in on me, pastor, pastor, pastor. So I started going faster, faster. I guess not fast enough for him. He started picking up rocks, throwing them at me, pastor, pastor. Well, I'd had it with that kid. I wasn't used to being told what to do, especially by a 14-year-old, and those rocks hurt. And I just laid into him in English. I said, Ahmed, if you don't stop that, I'm going to take the longest bath in the history of all baths, and you'll never get back to your hammock. Well, he had no idea what I was saying, right? He just knew Mrs. Burnham was mad again. And the rocks kept coming till finally Martin sternly said, stop that. He quit throwing rocks. A few weeks later, we were in a gun battle, number 13. Ahmad was wounded in the leg. We were really in trouble, um, trying to get away from the military who was everywhere. And because of that, they couldn't get Ahmad to the medical help that he needed. And he started to get feverish and talk out of his head a lot. They carried him for weeks. They would have to help him do everything in one day. I could tell he was very upset about something, and I found out he had messed his pants. There'd been nobody to help him go to the bathroom. And I thought to myself, this thought came from God, because I had a 14-year-old boy back at my house, right? I thought, if that was my boy, I would want someone to help him. And I went over to him in my faltering Cebuano, the only language we shared a little bit of. I asked him what I could do for him. And as I took his clothes to the river and washed them out, and as I threw them over the bushes to dry in the sun, in that moment, God totally changed my heart towards that kid. He gave me a love for him, and I can't explain it. Ahmad eventually went mad. He went ranting and raving crazy. The last time I saw him, they were sneaking us off of another island, and we had to go through a fisherman's hut to get down to the pier. As we went through the hut, I heard noises over in the corner. I thought it might be a big rat or something. I looked over there. There was Ahmad. He was skin and bones. His hands were tied to one side of the hut. His feet were tied to another. There was a sock stuck in his mouth so he couldn't cry out. A hat pulled down over his eyes so he couldn't see. And I wonder where Ahmad is today. Is he dead? 
Has he recovered and he's walking down a jungle path, pestering some other hostage? Is he still crazy somewhere? I'm so glad I had the opportunity to be generous with that boy because I can look back on him and not have any regrets. But it's because God changed my heart and gave me the grace to help someone instead of hate them. And God is in the heart-changing business. That's what he does best. And God's still changing me. Be warned, though. I don't have to tell any of you this. Change is hard. Mark Twain was right when he said, The only person who likes change is a wet baby. We get comfortable with life. Things are going well. Exactly the way we've carefully planned them to go. And then, wham, this problem hits. And it's not a small problem this time. It's a big one. And we have a choice to make. We can trust ourselves or we can trust God. When we choose to trust God with our problems, we come to know him in a completely new way. And I would encourage you to never hang a do not disturb sign on your heart's door. Allow God to do what he wants to in your heart. Because if we go through life and we're just always comfortable, but we don't learn important life lessons, wouldn't that be sad? Little by little in the jungle, God changed me. I began seeing those guys as the needy kids that they are. God gave us love for them. We began to be concerned about their spiritual welfare, contentment. Even joy began to grow in my heart as I learned to thank God for the good things I saw him doing every day instead of dwelling on the bad. I began finding songs and singing them quietly out loud to myself when we would lay down on our rice sacks at night. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. During long nights of hiking or days of hiking, I would lift my spirits by going through the alphabet with song titles. A. All the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? B. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. C. Close to thee, close to thee, close to thee, close to thee. All along my pilgrim journey, Savior, let me walk with thee. You know, this going through the alphabet thing could keep me going all afternoon as we hiked. Because I'm a pastor's daughter, I know the hymn book. I don't just know the first verse. I know all the verses. That was a great exercise. Great hymns of the faith kept me focused on the one who works all things together for good to those who love God. And it quite honestly helped me keep my sanity in the jungle. There are no hymns for X and Z, by the way. One more story and then we're done. 
I was always asking Martin things in the jungle. Uh, there were a lot of different languages being spoken amongst those guys, six or seven. They didn't even understand each other real well, and we didn't speak any of them, so I couldn't ask our captors my questions. So I would ask Martin, what are those guys doing? Wonder if we're going to have to hike all night again. Wonder where's a good place to go to the bathroom. I'm sure he got sick of me asking questions. Why do you think we're here? This captivity just keeps going on and on. Why are we still here? Some days in the jungle, we were in what we thought was a safe place, and we would just sit, waiting, bored, nothing to do, and singing always seemed past the time, and it encouraged us, so I decided to teach the other hostages the old hymn, How Great Thou Art. I wrote out the words on an old piece of abandoned cardboard that we found. I wrote all the verses, not just the first one. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Sometimes the Abu Sayyaf didn't want us singing. And they would hiss at us to get us to stop singing. But they never seemed to do that when we sang that song. They loved it too. It was beautiful. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. One night after we finished singing, How Great Thou Art, Martin said, you know, Gracia, you keep asking why we're still here. Maybe we're here to praise God in this very dark place. Maybe you're in a dark place today. You're there through no fault of your own. Or maybe what you face is self-inflicted. It's your fault. Maybe you feel like your freedom's been taken away from you. Or maybe things are so bad for you right now that you just feel like giving up. You know what the Bible calls it when we praise God when things are hard? It's called a sacrifice of praise. A praise sacrifice is something we offer to God when things are good and when we're filled with sorrow. I don't know your situation today, but God has not abandoned you. In fact... Maybe he has you in a special place right now so you can praise him there. What if we were to lift our head and open our mouth and raise our hands and praise the one who is able to take us through any trial? There's never a place too dark to praise the Lord. Praise is a sacrifice, an offering to God. Maybe you're here to simply praise him where you are. And thank you for having me this morning. God bless you.